just get this sorted. Well, good morning. Happy birthday. I'm expecting after that happy birthday to you that Ian's buying us all presents, but I don't think there's room in the church budget for that. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name's Lewis. Uh, it's really great to welcome you to church this morning. Let me just repeat what Ian said, that you are so welcome. Uh, if this is your first time, we are so glad that you're here, uh, and we'd love it if you stuck around at the end to get to know us a bit more. There'll be tea and coffee, uh, so please do that. And cake. Oh, yeah? <laughs> it's her birthday? Um, we are in the start of a new preaching series in the book of Jonah, and uh, I loved it last week. I thought Johnny was brilliant, and uh, one of the reasons we're doing this, and one of the reasons I loved it, was that actually... Normally, we start a new year and we think about us and what we want to do and who we want to be, and we get exhausted and we go to the gym, and by the 19th of January, we are not going to the gym anymore. But we want to start our year, and actually, we want to start our, our first birthday um, just gazing upon God, His glory, His love, His grace, His mercy. We're not, we're not about us here, we're about God. And so we are really excited to be in the book of Jonah, which is all about God. Uh, so we're going to be in Jonah chapter 3 this morning. But before that, uh, I wonder if you've ever played this game. My wife says it's really boring, this game that I'm going to describe. But it was a favorite of mine and my brother. So we used to share bunk beds, and I'd be in the top and he'd be in the bottom. And this game, along with guess which footballer I'm thinking about, which is... <laughs> <laughs> was our favorite, uh, and it's the word association game, so you know it. So I say cat, and as quickly as you can, you say the first word that comes to your mind, which is dog. House, garden, coffee, tea, and if we would go fast enough at this game, you'd get some really brilliant, funny Freudian slips. So girl, Katie, <gasps> who's that? You fancy her? Let's play this game now. How about this word? Repent. Saved. <laughs> Good one. I would gamble that for most of you, other than Dennis, the first thing that comes to your mind when I say the word repent is an image something like this. Somebody standing on a soapbox on a busy high street with a Britney mic like this one on, big fat Bible in hand, and they're screaming at the top of their voice, and there's a big sign with flames on it that says turn or burn. You might think of, on Buchanan Street, the anti-Buckfast preacher. Have you come across this guy? He has a big picture of a bottle of Buckfast that, Buck that he's painted with his hand. And he holds a bottle of Buckfast while he preaches against it. Bizarre. <laughs> but I would have been surprised if your initial reaction to the word repent was anything but negative, right? It's a bad word today. But this morning our passage is all about repentance. So just as a quick outline of where we're going to go, we'll see Jonah repent. So last week, Johnny showed us that he ran away. This week, we'll see him come back and repent. Then we'll see this great city, Nineveh, repent. And then we'll finish with God. Does even God repent? Last week, we left off with Jonah swallowed whole by a giant fish and vomited out onto a beach. Israel's holy man, Israel's Billy Graham, their great prophet, is lying on a beach, 
covered in the stomach acid of a whale, soaking wet, humiliated, almost drowned, and yet by God's grace, he's been washed ashore, resurrected even. And I thought last week was so helpful. And you could just see in the room that we were stirred by what Johnny brought about the grace of God on our lives. And it was such a helpful reminder of that. But we pick up this morning on the banks of the Mediterranean Sea with a soaking wet, probably stinking prophet and a couple of questions. What will happen to Jonah now? And what will happen to Nineveh now? So if you have a Bible, do turn to Jonah chapter 3. Uh, if you don't, it should, it, is, it should be on the screen behind me. And uh, we'll start in verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. Let's pray together before we jump in. Lord, we are almost painfully aware this morning that we need you. Lord, we need you to speak. And just as we see in this passage, Lord, that Jonah spoke and the Ninevites believed God we pray this morning that we would believe you, that you would speak to us through your word. Lord, what is true from what I bring, would you stick it to our hearts? And what is unhelpful, would it fade away? And Lord, we pray that you would be made glorified and famous this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was 12, uh, I was the starting striker for Arden Capel Boys Club football team. Now, I've realized that I've wrote that and not wrote B team. But I was the starting striker for the B team, just to clarify. <laughs> and uh, our arch rivals were Clyde Center Boys Club. And uh, they were my former team. So for me, it was this really fierce rivalry. And uh, a couple months into the season, we hadn't won a game yet. We were bottom of the league. I think we'd scored like two goals. And um, we had this match against Clyde Center. So the manager um, of the whole of Arden Capel gave us a couple of the A-team players to kind of boost our confidence so we'd win this game. And uh, big rivalry, about 25 minutes in, I'm the striker, the ball gets crossed into the box, the keeper's caught unawares, and there's an open goal in front of me. And I'm, I'm literally this far out. And somehow the ball went over the bar. And I just, I, don't, I couldn't do that if I tried. 
and uh, I fall, fall over as I hit it. I'm lying on the floor, and I have this really distinct memory of just a voice somewhere in the distance shouting, Taxi for Cameron! And I just lay there, and I was like, I don't want to get up. Ground swallow me. And it was this feeling of like, I will never play football again. Like, I am a, I'm just, what, what a failure. Right? Like, big rivalry, starting striker, and I'm missed. Can you relate to that feeling? What about this one? My first day at Dundee University, I arrived early to halls. I unpacked quickly. My flatmates hadn't arrived yet. And so being a good Christian, I thought, I'm going to spend the morning praying. And so I was praying for my new flatmates, and I was praying that I would be, you know, able to share with them who God is, and I was getting really fired up for them. And uh, they arrive, uh, we introduce ourselves, they go off to pack, and uh, I go to the Christian Union meet and greet. And uh, when I get back, my flatmates are kind of pre-drinking in the kitchen, and, and I go in, and they say, hey, where have you been? And I say, Christian Union. And they say, oh, and then nothing else. And eventually, uh, my old flatmate Josh pipes up and says, what do they do at the Christian Union? That sounds really interesting. You just think, yes, thank you, Jesus. What a question. Where do I even start with that question? And uh, here's what came out of my mouth. Just kind of hang out. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> that makes me squirm. Where, like, I think back and I'm like, oh. Oh, man. And I went to my room, and I had the exact same feeling that I did on the football pitch that day of, I'm done. This isn't for me. I'll never be effective in this. I'll never share the gospel. Surely you can relate to that one. What an opportunity, and I blew it. I wonder if Jonah's feeling was the exact same as he lies on the beach covered in stomach acid. He thinks, "Ah, I've blown it. God will find another prophet. Jonah's disobedience and failure went beyond missing a sitter in a football match or being a really awkward teenager when somebody asked you about Jesus. Just to clarify, let me use modern place names. God called Jonah to go east to Iraq, and he jumps on a boat west to Gibraltar. That is not dodging the question. That is just turning 180 and fleeing as far as you can go. It'd be like me jumping on a plane to New Zealand because I didn't want to preach this morning. I did want to preach this morning, just to clarify. (laughs) But Jonah, in the belly of the whale, he goes, he realizes, I have gone the wrong way. I've disobeyed God. And he cries out. And as Johnny shared with us last week, God saves him out of the overflow of the kindness of his heart. He spat out on the beach And God, in his kindness, has saved Jonah to a life of retirement, unfit for ministry. He's already on the beach. Why don't you just get some wood and build a retirement beach house? We know that's not what happens, don't we? Look at verse 1 with me. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Not only is Jonah forgiven and saved, he is recommissioned for the very task that he disobeyed God on before. Now, a lot of us are comfortable with part one, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But is his grace powerful enough to make you useful again? The story of Jonah screams yes. In fact, God isn't only able to make you useful. This is his speciality. It's his trade. 
Yes, Jonah disobeys. Yes, he goes down into the waters of death. But in the belly of the whale, Jonah realizes something, which is his deep-rooted spiritual need for God. Even, even him, even the prophet, even the holiest man in Israel. And something happens to us in our service of God when we are confronted by our own need for him. He doesn't need us. We need him. And when we realize that, which Jonah only realizes at the bottom of the sea, we are set free to finally be effective for God. The paradox of the story of Jonah, and actually the story of us, is this. Jonah is not suitable. He is a bad candidate to go to Nineveh. He doesn't care about them. He doesn't understand their spiritual need. And he would rather take flight and almost drown than pray for these people and preach to them. That is how much he dislikes them. He's not the right guy for the job. So God must make him suitable. And the paradox is that the only way that he could be made suitable was in his disobedience and fleeing. Here's what Sinclair Ferguson says in his little book on the book of Jonah. He says this, Where sin abounds, there does grace superabound. And where grace superabounds, where the grace of God and his forgiveness on us is present on us, then we take on what the Apostle Paul called the aroma of Christ. How freeing is that? I'll be honest with you, the depths of my sin are unspeakable. I am shocked every single day, probably every single hour, with the thoughts that I think and the desires in my heart and the actions I do every single day. And I praise God that I'm changing. But even as I prepared this week, this sermon, I just felt this deep freedom, this joyful freedom. I don't need to climb a two-footed ladder of ministry. I don't need to wax elegant and be a brilliant thinker. I don't need to compare myself to Ian Kennedy. (laughs) Because God's power is at its most obvious when we are at the end of our rope. And that's true for me, and it's true for you, and it was true for Jonah. Do you feel disqualified? I wonder why. Are you divorced or estranged from your family? Are you unable to speak clearly? Are you anxious and shy? Maybe you're in recovery from addiction. Maybe you're hyper-focused on your career to the detriment of what God is calling you to do. If you think you're beyond being used, then look at Jonah. Washed up, broken, helpless, and the word of the Lord comes a second time. Right? That's what we're after. We know we're broken. But the word of the Lord will come to you a second time. Jonah is not the exception. Peter is arrogant, illiterate, Jesus denying, and he becomes the leader of the early church. The apostle Paul, oppressive and blinded to the truth, becomes the apostle to Europe. Moses, anxious, murderous, a great, famous prophet. Jonah, disobedient and hateful. God's word comes a second time. Fill in the blanks for your own life. You are not beyond the reach of God's equipping grace to you. You are not a lost cause. 
God is delighted to use believers who have gone too far, failed too many times, disobeyed. It just displays more how gracious and good He is. Here's what we'll call the Jonah principle. Repentant resurrection life, it's a bit of a tongue twister for me there, <laughs> is the only foundation for being used by God. If you've not repented, if you've not felt your own deep spiritual needs, you won't be useful. The moment you realize that you're of no use to God whatsoever, then you become useful. So Jonah repents, and repentant resurrection is the source of what happens next. Jonah goes to Nineveh. Let's keep looking at our text. Uh, we'll start in verse 4. It says this, On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So Jonah is called for a second time. And this time he goes, not to Tarshish, not to the rock of Gibraltar, but to Nineveh. Here's what he says. You have 40 days and then God's going to destroy you. That's what he says, right? Forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, I, I don't know about you, this does remind me of the guy on Buchanan Street. Like, you can imagine Jonah with a placard. This is a ridiculous sermon. He rocks up to the city, and he says, Hey, guys, I'm here on behalf of the living God. You're about to be destroyed. And that's it. Let me give you some context of what's going on here. Nineveh is, uh, at this time, the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And uh, the Assyrian Empire is this great rival of Israel's. They've been at war with them. They're, they're kind of political enemies. And not only do they not worship God, but they have built idols to false gods, and they have killed and murdered and oppressed God's people. Here's a, a sample of what they were like. I can't pronounce this guy's name, but I'll try. Ash-ur-Narsipal, Ash II, who was the king of the Assyrian Empire just before the time of Nona, right? So he's probably seated in Nineveh. That's the capital. He probably sits there. He wrote this as an account of one of Assyria's many wars. He says, I felled 50 of their fighting men with the sword, burnt 200 captives from them, and defeated in a battle 332 troops. With their blood, I dyed the mountain red like red wool, and the rest of them, the ravines swallowed. I carried off captives, I cut off the heads of their fighters, and built a tower with their heads. I burnt their adolescent boys and girls. Now, like, this goes on and on and on. I literally could not read it out loud in this context. 
There's like talk of cutting off certain body parts, peeling off skin and draping it over mountains. Nineveh's not just a big city. It's an evil city. It's an oppressive, warmongering city. Don't read Jonah's commission from God as go to New York City. Read it as go to the Taliban. This is a country that delights in war and bloodshed and torture. In fact, chapter 4 will reveal that the reason Jonah disobeyed in the first place is he knows what these people are like, and he has no intention at all of seeing them get saved. And I don't blame him. What would you do if God said, hey, go to the Taliban? You're like, no, thank you. I, I, I just, my heart's just not big enough. I'm sorry. This is a city that deserves God's judgment. Now, I know we have something of a kind of visceral gut reaction against judgment nowadays. We think of kind of divine anger and we feel kind of repulsed by it. But God's justice has to go out against this kind of evil. And I think we instinctively know this. If you were to spend an hour uh, this evening reading the accounts of men in the trenches of the world wars, or if you were to read about 9-11 and the stories of people calling their loved ones to say goodbye, you cannot tell me your heart would not be inflamed with justified anger. The world should be different, right? We know this. But in order for it to be different, something has to be done about the brokenness that's all around us. How would you feel about God if you knew that he was just going to disregard and not judge rape and war and murder? Without God's judgment, this world has no hope. So God is coming to judge Nineveh, and this is all that they hear. Not, oh, how he loves us. Not, you're a good, good father. All they get is this. You have 40 days, and in 40 days, God's judgment will consume you. Nineveh will be no more. Now, my response, if somebody came to me with that, would be like, who's this weird foreign prophet guy who's just showed up in our city and told us we're going to be burned? But they don't mock, and they don't disregard his warning. No, they are utterly grief-stricken. They're just cut to the heart. Jonah has quite literally put the fear of God into these people, and they do all that they can think to do. They repent. They take off their clothes and they put on sackcloth, which is this kind of gritty material that folks in ancient times would wear to just show that they were humiliated and ashamed. They sit down in a pile of ashes to signify that they are mourning. Even the king of Nineveh, and we just heard what he's like, he gets off his throne, he removes his robes, and he sits in ashes. Weirdly, in verse 7 and 8, he tells everyone not to feed their cows. Like, I don't know that the cows need to repent. He does this because this message has changed everything. This is a whole of life thing. You don't go halfway in when you hear that the God of the universe is coming to get you. They don't know what else to do. And so they just fling themselves at his feet. And say, please, 
please spare us. The reaction is something like the prophet Isaiah's in Isaiah chapter 6. He comes into the presence of God, and he sees God seated on his throne, and he sees angels singing, and thunder, and lightning, and what does he do? He falls down. Here's what he says, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When we truly see God in His splendor, just as He is, and when we see ourselves just as we are, this is the response. He is too holy. I am too sinful. I need to shield my eyes because I can't even look at Him. Have you ever had a moment like that before God? Listen, we're for celebration at Glasgow Grace. We're for joy, but we're also for repentance, for grief-stricken, serious, I don't know what to do before the holiness of God, repentance. Well, that's great for the Ninevites, who are archaic and evil, but what about me and you? Surely we're basically good enough to avoid this kind of archaic religious response. Well, let me try and unpick that for us. A few years ago, I watched the Top Gear special. I don't know if you've seen this one, where they they try and find the source of the River Nile. And uh, if you you study geography in this room, please just wait till after I finish to like dispute everything I say here, because I don't know if any of this is real. But they try and find the source of the River Nile. And uh, this guy tells them, hey, you can find it in this like rocky field. 5,000 miles away, and they're wandering through this field trying to find it, and they're following this trickling stream, and they find this little puddle, and it's this size, and they decide, hey, this is the source of the River Nile. Now, again, you can respond to that later. (laughs) But the Nile is 6,650 kilometers long. It is 7.5 kilometers wide at its widest, and they, they follow it or they don't. And the source is a puddle. Now, technically speaking, it's impossible to determine the actual source of a river. But either way, what starts as something tiny, something trickling, something seemingly harmless, builds up momentum and becomes a raging river, the most famous, the longest on the planet. Your sin is just like that. What seems innocuous to you, maybe a small lie here, a little look at something you shouldn't overhear, will with time become just as evil as what we see in Nineveh. They might be at different stages of maturity, but they are from the same source. And uh, C.S. Lewis, as always, puts it so helpfully when he says this, good and evil increase at compound interest. What he means by that is that what seems harmless now, a tiny little investment in sin, will snowball and pick up steam, and before you know it, you're living in a raging river of sin. Just because you have not reached Nineveh's dizzy heights of evil does not make you exempt from God's judgment. 
if you don't know Jesus this morning, if you're here and, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I want you to hear the same message that Nineveh heard millennia ago. God is going to judge your sin. Now, the Ninevites respond by falling to their knees and begging with God for mercy. How will you respond this morning? Now, our crying and mourning will do nothing if God does not act, right? They can religiously respond all they want, but will God turn? Here's the words to a famous old hymn that I think capture the spirit of what they're doing. Not the labor of my hands could fulfill your law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. You must save and you alone. Look at verse 10 with me. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. So Jonah repents, and he becomes useful to God. The Ninevites repent and prostrate themselves at the throne of God, begging for mercy. And now God relents. So if you were to dig into the Hebrew of this passage, which I don't speak Hebrew, so I've not done, I trust people that are smarter than me, they say that the word relent is the exact same Hebrew word as the word repent. God turns around. He's inflamed with anger at Nineveh's sin, and yet something stays his hand. Now, is it just that he's a nice guy? Ah, they said sorry. I no longer have to be just. They said sorry. I'm cool with murder now. No, how, how is this possible? What happened to judging evil? What happens to their bloodlust and warmongering and torture? How can God just sweep it under the rug? Well, the answer is what Jesus calls the sign of Jonah. Here's what I mean by that. 800 years before Jesus lived, Jonah, in his disobedience, is flung into the sea and swallowed by a fish. Why? To avoid sinful pagan Ninevites being saved. Jesus, in his obedience, flings himself into the seas of, God's, of death and God's anger. He takes it upon himself to save not just the Ninevites, but all sinners. Jonah, because of God's great love towards him, is spat out on the third day, resurrected. Jesus, because of God's great love towards us, is spat out of death's grip on the third day, bursting into life. We said earlier that the Jonah principle is that resurrection is the best foundation for being useful to God. Here's the true Jonah principle. The real reason that this book was ever written in the first place the resurrection of Jesus, who threw himself into the path of God's anger against you, is the only power that can save you from what you deserve. 
The people of Nineveh deserved the unstoppable wrath of God. They deserved it to crash down on them like the waves crashed down on Jonah. But because of the unstoppable love of God, Jesus dives into the waters himself, drowns in the wrath of God, and emerges victorious. The Ninevites are free from God's judgment. You and I, if we will turn and repent, are free from God's judgment because Jesus, the greater Jonah, has taken it upon himself. God's love is relentless. His anger is not. Why? Because of Christ crucified for you. Nothing in my hand I bring, only to the cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I'll die. The grace of God found in Jesus is Jonah's only hope. It's Nineveh's only hope. It is our only hope. Jonah and Nineveh can repent, and we can repent because God, through Jesus, has relented of his anger towards us. He loves you. He somehow loved Nineveh, murdering bloodthirsty evil Nineveh. Here's how the Apostle Paul prayed for the church uh, in the city of Ephesus around about 800 years after this story. And here's how I'm praying for us in Glasgow this morning. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Here's how wide and high and long and deep God's love is, that while you were just like Nineveh, Jesus died for you. That even though you are just like Jonah, he is still delighted to use you. He calls you this morning to repent, to turn, beg for forgiveness, and run into the arms of your God. Well, listen, it's it's easy to read stories like this and think that's a Bible story. And even if you believe this happened, it's easy to think, well, that was then, that was millennia ago. God done that then. Surely we don't believe that could happen today in Glasgow. Do we? Surely, if you're a visitor, you're not thinking, this church actually thinks that Glasgow can have this happen to them. Let me finish with this. Forty years ago, there were around three million Christians in China. Now, that that does sound a lot, but it's about 0.2% of their whole population. The government was aggressively anti-Christian, killing it at its source, murdering Christians. Today, experts think that in 10 years, China will be the Christian capital of the world. Some today think that there's 100 million Christians in China, and the government are still pushing back against it, and they can't stop it. Why? 
because of the unstoppable love of God. His arm is not too short to save. The book of Jonah is not a Sunday school story. God is in the business of revival. Even today, he's doing it in China. He'd done it in Nineveh. And we believe, don't we? He can do it in Glasgow in 2020. Can you stand with me and we'll pray together before the band come back up? Oh, Father, we, <clears throat> we praise you for this account of a city that hears your word and is just utterly transformed by it. And Lord, I thank you for these men and women here this morning. Lord, I pray that those of us who don't yet know you, Lord, those of us who are here maybe for the first time and are hearing for the first time of their need for Jesus, Lord, I pray that you this morning would draw them close to you, Lord, those of us who need to, for the first time, beg your forgiveness, Lord, would we do that this morning? For those of us who feel discouraged, disqualified, unable to serve you, Lord, I pray that you would speak to them this morning, Lord. I pray that we would know that you are the God who uses broken instruments for your glory, Lord. You don't need us to have it all together, Lord. You just need us to come before you and say, we know we need you. And Lord, we say that together this morning. We know we need you. And Lord, we pray that you would use us. And we pray for this city, Lord. We pray for Glasgow that we would see revival just as we see it in Nineveh in this story. Lord, come now. We pray you'd come and speak to us and be among us. For your wonderful name. Amen. Amen.